Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, encampments are appearing across many cities due to the pandemic, but here in Hamilton, City Council doesn't seem to want to meet with people who may want to find a solution to this. I'll give you the details on that. A new report by the Ontario Chamber of Commerce covers the impact the pandemic has had on women in the workforce. Claudia DeSanti from the uh, Chamber joins us. And yesterday, the Ontario government announced a four-week freeze on reopening plans for the province. The Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario, Dr. David Williams, will join us to discuss it. It's all coming up, the Bill Kelly Podcast starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml i want to talk about the encampment issue which is a, a big story and an ongoing story in hamilton and london and many other communities too but uh, it's we've talked about it and, and tried to give you a description as to exactly what is happening uh and and how it's going to be resolved now hamilton city council is going to be meeting in about another 20 minutes and apparently it's on the agenda once again uh, there's been some legal action about this in both London and Hamilton. Uh, a number of people are s- simply saying, look, this is an a, a un- unintended and sad consequence of COVID-19. Uh, but there are some people on city council that also just want to say, get them out of there. However you do it, whatever you do, just get them out of there. To uh, give us some insight as to what's actually going to be happening about this, uh, uh, we're pleased to welcome back Nisa, Lisa Nussie, who is, of course, with the Keeping Six Hamilton Harm Reduction Action Team, who have been heavily involved in this uh, right from the beginning. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could hop on with us today. Oh, good morning. Thank you. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, you've heard the reaction from some people on council. There are some th- sympathetic voices, but mm-hmm. you know, when they decided last week about continuing legal action, there was a, a nine to three vote in favor of continuing to do that, as opposed to trying to find some sort of a resolution. How do you, how do you respond to something like that? I think we were a bit um, surprised at the overwhelming majority of councillors who voted to go directly to legal action instead of even the intermediary step of trying to sorted out through discussion. I think one thing that's important to point out is that if we were to come to the table and talks failed, there would still be the option of of following up with a with a court case, right? So if there was just no common ground that could be found once we were able to actually speak to one another, then we would have both agreed that court was the best option to settle this by a third party. But um, so we were a bit a bit surprised by the majority and obviously disappointed in the in the in the vote itself. And and the reason being is that, you know, there's just so much nuance to this conversation and so much um, so much uh, compromise to be had and so many competing and contributing factors that that it really is best sorted out through discussion. You know, we bring a wealth of experience to the table. The city has its own perspectives that need to be taken into consideration. And so when we take when we remove that nuance and bring it into a court system where it's sort of a yes or no answer, then in in our view, really, um, everybody loses, because like I, we um, we we've we've tried to communicate to people, you know, if we win the injunction, which obviously we hope we do, if that's what the the route that it goes, we still need to come up with solutions, and if we lose the injunction, we're just hard pressed to understand, particularly given the numbers that we're seeing on the streets, like what the end game is. You know where? As well, you and that's that's, top, that's the frustration yeah. that I'm feeling too, Lisa. Yeah. When when I look at this, and we've talked with you and and other folks uh, and, and representatives from the city as well. Uh, and the concern I've got here, and I think you've you've underscored it here, is this is not a, 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 an easy situation. It's not a black mm-hmm. and white situation. Uh, and and the end game of the injunction is not to say, okay, you they they should stay there as long as they want. It's right. to say, how can we how can we fix this? Uh, yeah. And a judge is not going to rule in that favor. He may rule, in, or she, in in the, in the case of the injunction, 
But they're not going to give you the answer. They're not going to give you the solution to this. The problem will still exist no matter how the judge rules on the injunction itself. And what do we do about it? Precisely. So, so I mean, I mean, to be fair, we started the legal action, but we started it as a sort of a, a last recourse, and we spoke with as many people who would listen to us right up to the very last minute of feeling we had no recourse but to say, "Okay, we have to t- we have to go file for this injunction. We have no options." But throughout and before and after, we have maintained like we would really like to try to work this out um, in the interest of everybody, really. And um, I, I again agreed. We're not interested in building tent cities. We have, you know, and it's. It, Many people have acknowledged that we've been working really hard to cooperate with people in order to facilitate people getting into shelter, getting into housing, whatever it is that makes people safer. And at the end of the day, though, we just don't have options for everyone at the moment. And so our our plea is to say, okay, well, let's pause and figure out options for everyone. And, and as you pointed out at the beginning, this is not a situation that's unique to Hamilton. It's happening all across the country. And so we need to sort of pause and go, okay, well, what is this actually about? And what are the bigger underlying issues that are contributing to it that are going to take more than six weeks to sort through or four weeks to sort through? Well, and and, and that that's the concern. And I'm, I mean, I've talked to Paul Johnson about this, and I know you know Paul, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and his background is in social services, and he was, he was outstanding at that. And he's, I think he's very empathetic to what's going on here uh but the complexity of the situation causes the problem i mean in in a worst case scenario and by worst case i mean for the people that are involved that are in the encampments uh you know you could send people in there to clean them out tomorrow that's not going to solve the problem they're just they're going to go someplace else they have to go someplace else because they don't have uh, an easy solution there is no home for them to go back to at this stage and uh, and you know it's incumbent upon city council and city staff, I guess, to sit down with with interested groups like yourselves and say how can we handle this? Because mm-hmm. it's a discussion that's going on, as you said, in just about every other city now. Correct. And I mean, I think we appreciate you know the 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 um, the displacement of people really undermines everybody's efforts to to uh, get people into better living conditions, you know, and we appreciate that the encampments are difficult for people. We appreciate that they've grown to be a size where, where it's, you know, it's uncomfortable for many people. And we have also at the same time heard and, and seen and been part of many success stories that have been the direct result of people being able to stay in one place. So people are getting medical treatment that they've never been able to get before. People are able to not perpetually have to deal with recreating their whole living environment such that they can't even think about, you know, uh, connecting with the housing worker and getting their ID back and those kinds of things. All of those things happen when people have the stability and this and the, the the lack of preoccupation with like the most immediate of needs even though i mean it's hard to imagine that living in a tent meets many many of our immediate needs but it meets more than many people are used to when they're forced to move from one place to the other every week or two weeks or four days whatever it might be and that's always been one of the resounding messages that we have tried to to um uh, sort of bring forward from Keeping Six, even before we were dealing with encampments, one of the perpetual messages we hear from people is that they have nowhere to be. And we had to deal with that all throughout COVID. Public spaces were closed. People had nowhere to be. People are per- perpetually moved on from one place to the next. And when you can never stay still, it's very difficult to take the next step in anything. 
Well, and, and that's the concern about this. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, I haven't heard anybody in this debate, anybody suggest, hey, this is a great idea, these encampments, love this, uh, including the people that are there, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's it's not the right solution, and everybody is aware of that. And I'm hoping, I, you know, we'll see what's going to happen at the council meeting in Hamilton here today anyway, uh, that they understand the gravity of the situation. The clock is ticking. I mean, it's September, and it's not going to stay warm for very much longer. In another right. couple of months, yeah. I mean, it's going to be winter here, and uh, a tent's not going to cut it when it comes to getting, may get you out of the elements, but it's too damn cold to be out on the street, which is essentially what they're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. So, so where do we go here? I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll kind of, I guess you guys are in a holding pattern to see how city council is going to try to deal with this on their program today on the agenda that they've got. Uh, but in the meantime, I mean, we can't just sit here and, and you know, twiddle our thumbs and say, well, let's wait and see it because, uh, you know, a, a solution has to be found here. And absolutely, and you know, there are so many, in the meantime, during the injunction, and I would argue that the injunction has given people the stability on the, on the city side in terms of the, the street outreach workers, the social navigator program, all the housing agencies that are engaged and the social service agencies that are engaged, they continue to work throughout this injunction. So people are actively working from all corners on finding solutions. And I think it's an ongoing, um, uh, you know, there's an ongoing effort that's not been paused because of the injunction. And, and I, again, would argue it's been accelerated because of the injunction. So, you know, that work continues regardless of the injunction. Our work and our efforts would be greatly enhanced if we could speak to people and have conversations about how to best resolve this. Um, but in the absence of that, we're, we're waiting for a court date to try to um, maintain this injunction. And we just, our hands are tied otherwise, you know. Well, as we say, I know there are some people that are advocating for this, uh, that are social service and, uh, advocates for this, and they've done great work in this community and other communities. But there's another element to, to the people that are, are, are trying to seek solutions here, too, and that's the medical community. This mm-hmm. is, by definition, this is a public health issue. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that, that has yeah. to be addressed in a situation. And, and look, at I've heard the comments from some people on city council here in Hamilton. Uh, yeah, they're right. The, the federal government has really dropped the ball on affordable housing, as has the, f- the provincial governments. And not just this one. I'm talking about over the last 20, 25 years. They've abdicated their responsibility. We get that. We know that. Uh, but that doesn't solve the problem here and now. And, and you know, we're, we're looking to these councils and these uh, these local communities right now and these local politicians to, to deal with the, the issue right here. And mm-hmm. just, this is no time for finger pointing. Now, all that's true, and that's a, maybe a contributing factor in what got us to where we are today. But it doesn't solve it. Absolutely. So, to, to your first point about the issues of health, I, I, we often lose sight of it. But the original reason for this for this call to not move people um, here and across the country, and really many many places around the world, was about COVID. And there were very clear guidelines from the CDC, which is the Centers for Disease Control in in um, the United States, which said. As a pandemic prevention measure, people should be, if they're in encampments, the priority should be helping them access housing or shelter that's safe. But in the absence of being able to do that, people should be left where they are so that they don't contribute to the spread of COVID throughout the community. And we've been doing very well in Hamilton in both the generally speaking and in the housing and shelter system in terms of of um, isolating cases and, and not spreading it through the community. And we're also with this phase three, as you were talking about at the top of the show, and the, the numbers are, are creeping back up and it's becoming a concern again for people. And people are, are 
on the streets are very wary of COVID. They, you know, and and it, as you pointed out, people's health is is quite um, vulnerable, and so COVID for many folks who are already at a health disadvantage is 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 you know it will compound their their difficulties for sure. Well, you know, we've watched, uh, those of us that are watching uh, sports now, basketball and and hockey in particular, their playoffs, uh, those guys are in a bubble. uh, And and that's essentially how you stop the spread of COVID. Now, the encampments, in that loose definition, are in their bubble. It's not a very attractive bubble. It's not really the bubble that I think they'd want to be in, but they're, they're, they're they're keeping together and i know there have been some incidents there and some people have been complaining about this and some some uh, alleged assaults and some things are going on i get that because it's not the perfect situation mm-hmm. but they are controlling the spread and, and and by staying where they are as opposed to as you mentioned going all over the place and i know the city has tried to uh, to uh, to place them in different places uh, whether it's going to be some housing some in hotels i guess in situations like that uh, but as you know and 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 i'm hoping as city council understands uh there's public health issues there's also mental health issues that are at play here too mm-hmm. and and so that's it goes back to your original point in our discussion here lisa uh there is no easy solution to this but there has to be a solution yes and in the absence of a solution let's pause so that we don't and you know this has also always been our point that if there is nothing for people to go to and people are working very hard bill they really are working hard to get people other alternatives but I mean, as you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, as, as people say, when they're, you know, when you've got 60 to 100 people sleeping on the street, there's just clearly not options for everybody. Okay, let's, let's accept that, allow people to stay where they are, and continue to work at finding people places to be. So what's the next step as far as you're concerned? I guess you're kind of in reactive mode now, waiting to see what council is going to do and waiting to see if the, if the, the legal system can, can accommodate you at this stage. Yeah, I mean, we're just doing what we always do. We're continuing to engage. You know, we've been really engaged in the encampments from the beginning because it's, you know, it's our people and we we work very collectively amongst people. And so we work to address, like, identify people's needs and address them. And, and um, we've tried to help and foster some building community in, in the encampments. And, and we'll continue to do that. The injunction certainly doesn't prevent anybody from doing that. We'll continue to cooperate with our partners at the city and our partners um in in other agencies and and like i said it, it would be easier if we could talk to the city in terms of like sort of short and medium term solutions um but that's just not not the case right now and um and then like i said the court date we expect to be sometime in october at this point well, we'll stay in touch on this, Lisa, and as I'm for sure. sure. Thanks for having us back, yeah. We're, we're going to have some reaction to the city council, I guess, probably in tomorrow's program after we get some sort of a, a picture as to how they're going to move forward on this as well. And we've got some calls out to some city staff, too. But uh, uh, stay with us, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to find a solution in one way or another to try to resolve this issue. Thanks so much for okay. the time today, and thanks so much for the, the work that you're doing on this uh, very important problem. Appreciate your interest. Thank you. Take care, Lisa. Okay. Lisa Nussi, of course, from Keeping Six, the Hamilton Harm Reduction Action Team, and others involved, a number of public health officials and doctors uh, are on the same side there trying to find some solutions for those folks and for the greater community, too. As I say, it's it's not perfect, and nobody is saying this is this is a good idea, but it's right now the only accommodation that they can find in very trying circumstances 
And uh, as we found out, and we're going to discover a little bit later on in the program when we talk to Dr. David Williams, the uh, Ontario Medical Officer of Health, uh, COVID's not going away anytime soon. So neither are these problems. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A week or so ago, uh, we were talking with Rocco Rossi, the uh, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, about the recovery plan here in Ontario. And uh, Rocco mentioned at the time that the Ontario Chamber was actually working on a report about the, uh, the the way that COVID has not just impacted the worst workforce, but especially women in the workforce. Well, that report is done now. It's called the She Covery, uh, this report uh, that was uh, commissioned by the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Joining us to talk about the details uh, is uh, Claudia DeSanti, who is the Senior Policy Analyst at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Claudia, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, a lot of concern about this, and uh, when Rocco told us that you guys were doing some research into this, I was eager to, to get you guys back on as soon as this was completed, because uh, this is a very important uh, picture, a part of the picture, rather, if we look at the analysis of how COVID has impacted the Ontario economy, but especially women in the workforce, and I guess that was the, the motivation for this report. Absolutely. Women's participation in the workforce is very much a business issue. It's an economic issue. And if we look at the data over the past century, Ontario has seen women's participation in the workforce increase steadily over time, and that's been tremendously positive for our economy. So when COVID hit and we saw women's participation rate fall to its lowest level in 30 years, we started becoming deeply concerned about what this means in the long term um, and started looking more into how it's been disproportionately affecting women, particularly women that were already vulnerable. Um, and so for us, women's economic recovery is a precondition for Ontario's economic recovery. We wanted to write this report that not only looks at the data, but also looks at some practical solutions, both to address the immediate challenges and some longer term barriers that women have faced. So let's let's delve into this in detail, if we could, for just a few minutes anyway, Claudia. Uh, as, you, as you look through this data right now, uh, was it women right across the board in the workforce, or were there specific areas of the economy uh, where women were more adversely affected than, than others? It's a good question. On average, women were affected more. When you dig into it, uh, women with children between the ages of 6 and 17 were understandably affected more because they had to uh, deal with homeschooling and childcare responsibilities. Um, but also women, uh, immigrant women, women in more uh, low-paid sectors, uh, face-to-face occupations, of course, they uh, lost more jobs during the early stages of lockdown and have since then regained less employment. Um, low-income women, uh, racialized women. Uh, so there are various groups who have felt this differently. Um, but when you look at different sectors of the economy, it certainly has been focused in sectors that uh, were predictably more affected by restrictions related to COVID. Well, yeah, and, and you know, once the shutdown happened, I mean, they're, they're basically out of work. And they say if you're in a low-paying job to begin with, and we know uh, that there are some women in the workforce, uh, single moms and some others, that are actually working a couple of different jobs to try to make ends meet. And if all of a sudden your income is cut off, where do you go? What do you do? No, it's true. And, and I mean, if you ask any parents, uh, they'll say that the challenge uh, during COVID has been um, to kind of see their home life and work life collide and, and to balance those two responsibilities. But if you're a single mother or if you're in precarious work and, and you're living paycheck to paycheck, uh, the CERB was certainly helpful. A lot of the government programs were helpful, um, but it's been greater challenges for them, for sure. Uh, I, I 
just saw the overview of the report, and I was interested to find out exactly uh, how this has impacted uh, frontline workers, because there were some women, of course, uh, in the workforce that were deemed essential for whatever, some in the medical field, but in others as well. Uh, that uh, maintained their jobs, and that's all well and good, but they're also at a higher exposure to COVID uh, because they were going to work on a daily basis before a lot of the protocols uh, were put in place like this. So, I mean, it's kind of a, a double jeopardy situation for many women in the workforce, isn't it? It is, and they don't have many other options if that is the job that they're in. So part of the solutions that we look at are around workforce development opportunities. Women tend to be concentrated in sectors that are in face-to-face industries, uh, less represented in science, technology, engineering, uh, and the skilled trades as well. So part of the recovery from COVID will have to be to develop pathways for women to um, enter. You know, they may stay in face-to-face occupations, but they should have equal access to retraining in different sectors so that when the next crisis hits, we're not seeing disproportionate impacts on a particular socioeconomic group because they're concentrated in a specific sector. Now, it's bad enough, and of course, some people are going to say, come on, everybody was adversely affected by COVID and the shutdown, in varying degrees. I'm, I'm sure that, that that's probably the case, but women more so in, in, in so many different situations like this. But as your report also delves into, a, which I think is a troubling aspect of this, this whole scenario, uh, now that we're into phase three of the recovery, uh, that the government is trying to go forth with. Uh, women aren't getting called back to work as much as, much as men are, are they? No. RBC predicts that about half a million jobs in Canada will not come back, um, and, and most of those are women, they say. Uh, so that's deeply concerning, and we need to think long-term about how we uh, protect those groups from long-term unemployment and, and also just short-term income challenges that they're facing. So... This is where the retraining comes in, and it's it's going to be such a key part of this recovery. Uh, if, you know, I mean, if, if a woman's been doing something for in, in a job for a number of years and all of a sudden finds out that job is just doesn't exist anymore, uh, they may be in a family situation. They've certainly got bills to pay. It, it's it's easy to say, well, they should be retrained, but there's got to be some accommodation for, the, for their individual circumstances, uh, maybe even more so than men when it comes to retraining programs. Uh, there has to be a, that discussion, I would think, with, with governments and with education officials about how we're going to move forward on this and how we're going to be able to accommodate those people. It's true. And the good news is that we have a lot of retraining programs in place. The challenge, as you mentioned, is to make sure that they're accessible and affordable for women. Um, and part of that is the child care challenge. We know that a lot of women are not able to retrain because they're at home with their children more likely than, than men are. Um, so whether it's a, a short-term child care subsidy or um, some sort of priority access to child care, uh, that needs to be part of the conversation because we hear time and time again that workforce development and child care are so intricately connected. Well, I'd circled that on the overview of child care because I wanted to bring that up with you because it's going to be such a key part in this. And it, it just seems as if what we've seen here uh, and, and the scenario that, that you've outlined uh, with this report is uh, that COVID maybe didn't create all of these problems, but it exacerbated a lot of them. I mean, there's always been a concern about child care and a lack of child care and affordable child care. Uh, that was there pre-COVID. It, COVID made it worse now. And uh, we've got to concern ourselves with that. There's the, the gender pay gap that was in existence. And, uh, you know, that was made worse, of course, by the number of people that end up losing their jobs altogether and getting called back for maybe in some cases less money. So th- this is this is in many cases a, a, a set of not new problems, but problems that need to be addressed. And uh, sadly, uh, because of COVID, you know, 
they're still there and they're probably worse than they were 15, 20 years ago or even 15, 20 months ago. But at least we're talking about it now. And that's, that's the important thing, I would think. For sure. And for a group like the Chamber of Commerce to, um, to put a report out there that touches on childcare and women's issues is, um, at least for us, it's unprecedented. But hopefully the context um, of this pandemic, if there is any positive that comes from it, will be that we start having a serious conversation about things like long-term childcare reform um, and, and really about moving beyond the platitudes around gender pay and really start developing those strategies. Because if we don't do it after this crisis, it, it's um, a, a bit demoralizing to think that we, we wouldn't be able to get our act together now. And, and yeah, governments need to act on this. And, and I, I know that you've been talking, Rocco told us last week, that you've been in discussions with the provincial government especially uh, about developing and, and, and having a voice in, uh, in the recovery period because of the impact that it's had. But, but your point's well taken. I mean, the chamber has always been the voice of business in, in this province and, and has advocated in, in, at, at just about every level uh, to try to make sure that business and, and those in business have a voice. But uh, you've actually moved down a level now, and you're talking about the actual workforce themselves uh, and the impact that this has had. I mean, certainly it's going to have an adverse effect on businesses themselves, many small businesses who are negatively impacted by this. But uh, but you're talking about the people themselves, and, and I guess it's, uh, it's, it's underscoring to the government uh, who are going to be developing these policies to say you've got to look after these individuals uh, about things like child care, about things like like uh, flexible work arrangements. I mean, we, we for the last six months, I guess, Claudia, we've been doing business differently in this province because of COVID. Uh, and I guess we have to have that discussion about are we going to continue that road or are we going to try to go back to the way things were, which maybe wasn't necessarily even the best method then. It's true. It's all about the people. At the end of the day, I think employers understand that if their people are uh, happy and um, safe and able to come to work and be productive, then it's good for their bottom line. It's good for the economy. So it's at the end of the day, it's all about the workers. Um, and the other aspect, too, is from a gender perspective, women entrepreneurs who are both the worker and the business owner, they've been impacted more um, than men on average partly because the businesses that they tend to own are smaller, newer, less well-financed, and they weren't eligible for a lot of the government supports early on. So there's a whole group of women entrepreneurs that are doing fantastic work, uh, are not well-supported with access to capital and export opportunities. And if we want to use entrepreneurship as a key driver of economic recovery, which we believe we should, then we need to make sure that uh, entrepreneurship is accessible to diverse groups because it's only going to create a a more economic activity for all of us well and and that's an excellent point i mean when we look at the economic recovery and what was happening here in the province of ontario before covid entrepreneurship was one of the key drivers wasn't it yeah for sure small businesses account for uh, more than 90 percent of all uh, workforce uh, in ontario and they they really do drive the economy so taking care of of their needs um, and, and often they don't have a lot of extra capital and reserves to, to withstand a crisis like this. So our focus really has been um, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and making sure that uh, they're able to uh, recover and adapt going forward. We, we talked about the way in which we work these days, and, and there are so many different variables that uh, that I know the Chamber is uh, talking about right now. Well, one is working from home, which is what I've been doing for the last six months, and many others have as well. Uh, flexible work hours is something else, too, that was on the table. I don't know how serious the discussion got in some workplaces about that, but uh, now that we've had to, to pivot because of COVID, 
Uh, that's got to be part of the discussion, I would think, too, to say, okay, not just getting called back to work or to be retrained to find something else in, in the way of employment and career, uh, but at the same time, flexible hours. I mean, the, you know, if, if we've learned anything through this, it's uh, we don't live in a nine-to-five world anymore. It's true. I've been working from home as well, and uh, it comes with challenges, but it comes with a lot of benefits that I think the pandemic has allowed people to uh, familiarize themselves with, and hopefully employers will now consider that as an option going forward. Um, it's also important that our report talks about flexible work, and, and I used to see it as a, an office job type of uh, opportunity, but uh, there are flexible work arrangements that are applicable to shift work um, and different sectors that we don't typically think of. Um, maybe they're not telecommuting, but they're job sharing, or they're doing different arrangements that can work for different types of workers. So in our report, we recommend that um, employers work with government to understand what those different scenarios could look like. There are employers that are championing flexible work, um, so understanding how they've implemented it and what the outcomes have been, uh, and then helping businesses with guidance if they're interested in doing that. Uh, It's not about just um, making sure that uh, parents have more accommodations or or people can uh, live further from the city. Flexible work has tremendous benefits for for everything from productivity to congestion. If you think about fewer people on the roads if people are working from home. So it's something we need to dig in further. Well, and we'll see how governments respond. And I, I mean, we've been focusing our discussion about quote-unquote government with the provincial government, but the feds certainly have a role to play in this as well. You mentioned the CERB program that was rolled out, and uh, it, it had some problems and shortcomings, which uh, the government tried to address with some of the uh, the embellishments they made to it a little bit later on. Uh, the other one, though, the the that we've heard an awful lot about, and you just mentioned it a couple of times because I know it's a, a big part of the report, is childcare. And uh, there's some discussion now as uh, the federal government rolls out a throne speech in a week or two you know, about a national child care program. Not sure if it's going to happen, but that certainly would be a catalyst for some of the recovery aspects that you've talked about here. It should be, for sure. And, you know, in our report, we look at some international examples of what affordable childcare can look like. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all. Maybe in Ontario, we take a more market-based approach to, to retain more choice for parents, like South Korea does. Uh, Quebec obviously has their universal child care program. Um, there are different ways we can do it, but um, we all, I think, understand now that uh, more accessible, affordable child care is going to be a precondition for uh, women's fulsome participation in the economy. So whatever model we end up with, we need to get those conversations started. Claudia, this is a very fulsome report that uh, covers an awful lot of bases and I think raises some very uh, important questions that need to be part of our discussion going forward. I assume this is a con- it's on your webpage now, on the Ontario Chamber webpage? That's right, it is. There's a link for it anyway. Uh, so anybody that wants to get more detail about that, simply go to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce webpage and uh, get all the details on that. Uh, congratulations on the great work that you and your staff have done on this, Claudia. Uh, as I say, we have uh, we know that this is going to be a key part of the discussion, and you brought up some very, very valid points that need to be part of this recovery plan. So uh, I may, may end up using this as the Bible, I guess. We'll make sure that the provincial folks know about this, too, as they go forward with uh, Phase 3 of this. Thanks for the time today. Thanks so much, Bill. Great talking with you. Claudia DeSanti, of course, Senior Policy Analyst at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And uh, interesting stuff here. And and, and one of the sidebar uh, stories that we have to talk about, about COVID and the impact that it's had, is, as I say, the adverse impact it's had on the the women's in, women rather in the workforce. 
good reading, an essential reading, I think, for people that are interested in getting Ontario back on its feet. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the announcement that was made at Queen's Park yesterday, uh, uh, hitting the pause button on our recovery. And, and the Premier told us when he was on our program a, a few days ago, that if they started to see some of the numbers go up with COVID-19, the number of new cases, that is, uh, that they would react to it. Well, that's essentially what we saw yesterday when uh, the Premier and uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott made the announcement. Global News' uh, Dave Woodard was there, and this is his report. Health Minister Christine Elliott says this is all about the children. The reality is that spread in the community will also likely mean spread in the schools. So we need to limit the spread in the community as much as possible. But what does putting a pause on reopening actually mean? What could be affected? Including any greater uh, size of our, our social circles. As well, she says that means no fans at sporting events for the time being. The pause is for four weeks to see how things go. And if the numbers don't increase significantly, they can start to reopen more parts of the economy after that. Dave Woodard, Global News. So what does this mean and uh, and what was the, the rationale behind that? Uh, to get some answers on that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about process here and the concerns that uh, I know that you've expressed a number of times in, in the briefings that you've had uh, from Queen's Park with the Premier over the, uh, the last little while. And you've, you've been consistent with the message, Doctor, that, uh, you know, this is not a perfect plan, uh, even the Phase 2, Phase 3 part of the recovery, uh, but it's the best possible plan. But you were always cognizant of the fact that if you saw something that was concerning, that you were going to react to it. Is, is, uh, that was the process, I assume, that, uh, that led you to the decision yesterday? Well, that's correct. I mean, the perfect plan means it's already been done before and someone has a template, and these are unprecedented times, and we're taking information material as the science drives us and directs us, as our experts give us at our table, our public health measures table, and as we've gone through the phasing and the staging, it's very important that we're seeing how does it go, how the response, what does our data show us, how do we have to be nimble and flexible to add things and delete things. And so, again, we're looking at that aspect of where we are in the this stage three. Uh, we've opened up um, now for about three or four weeks throughout the province, seeing what is happening, what are our areas of concern, and we made recommendations to the minister and the premier that while there are more ideas that people would like to open up more and more in stage three, with the big issue right now, our schools, post-secondary as well, all opening up right now, that's a huge undertaking, and we want everybody to focus on that task at this time and not add any more uh, confusion to the issue so that we can keep our eyes uh, on the target and make sure we're maintaining consistent community uh, spread limitations. Uh, I'm not going to drag you into the politics of this, Doctor, but uh, as a citizen, I'm, I'm awfully glad to see our elected officials in Ontario uh, listening to science, because it doesn't happen in every jurisdiction. Uh, enough said about that. That's a rhetorical statement. Uh, but where have you had a chance to analyze the data? I mean, we have seen some some uh, increases in Ontario in new cases in the last little while. Uh, this is, I assume, the process of nipping this in the bud before it starts to get out of control like it did in the springtime? That's correct. If we're seeing this uh, number going up and we were uh, back three weeks ago, we're coasting under 100 and that was uh, reassuring. Then we moved up to the low hundreds and then below 150 and then the last few days we bumped over. Uh, today we're down to a little bit under 150. Let's just call it 150. But that's just one day. Let's see what happens. And it was on a weekend, so maybe less people came out. 
So we'll see where that goes. So we're looking at a number of parameters there to see how it's flowing. Where are these, out, where are these numbers clustering? They tend to be in a large, dense urban centers, uh, namely uh, Toronto, Peel, a little bit of York region, not so much, and Ottawa. Uh, we haven't seen much in Hamilton around the area, so good work on that. And then we're seeing what are they from? Are they from writ large or are they what we're seeing is community, uh, social, uh, public gatherings where people have not maintained uh, consistent restraint and have uh, violated the uh, social distancing and the masking in the gatherings. We've said you could do 50 indoor, 100 outdoor in stage three, but that wasn't mean throw caution to the wind and saying don't mask, don't uh, maintain social distancing. We said you had to include that. And this is your social circle, your bubble, if you may. But we found people just basically, uh, in some areas in history, just decide to disregard that and have a gathering. And then we've seen outbreaks accordingly. Well, and I've heard that anecdotally, too, from some folks, too, that said, well, they said 50, but that really means 60 or 70, if that's what you want. I mean, what's the? there is a difference. Uh, uh, the U.K., as I'm sure you saw in the news today, has downsized the number of people that can gather. Now it's back down to six uh, in anticipation of uh, what they think is going to be a spike because they've seen new cases as well. So uh, I would think, Doctor, in, in this province, everything's on the table if, in fact, uh, these numbers don't go down to your satisfaction. Well, well that's true. We the priority in the premiers is at it, and of course it's my priority too, is the safety and health of our public, especially our vulnerable populations, but the whole level writ large. And how do we put that in place? So right now we're saying we're slowing, we're not opening up anymore because there's some groups that are saying, well, you want 50, why can't we have more? We're saying no, not this time. Uh, risky venues, uh, some of them, let's hold off. And if we can't get that, then do we have to do things in regional because 80% of the province geographically, has been kept their numbers down. Some areas have had no cases for weeks. And so we may have to look at some regional uh, limitations if we have to to bring things under control. But let's just hope our reminders and issues and the notes we put out to everybody saying, let's keep focused, let's keep the job at hand, don't drop uh, the rear guard, maintain these this vigilance. And if you thought you weren't going to get infected, you got infected. And so therefore, we cannot be casual in this at all. We have to be uh, really strict at staying in this, especially during the next number of weeks, because we want low community numbers to make it safer for all the children to go back to school and to make sure we don't have any further infections back into our like our long-term care facilities. I, I guess it's human nature, isn't it, Doctor, that uh, that when you see this happen and, and you know we move into phase three to think, well, I guess the worst is over. And I, I've heard that from from some people, and I thought, that don't don't jump out of here yet. I mean, there's still a long way to go. We we all have a role to play. I, I'm happy to see the number of face masks out there. I know it's it's mandated in many jurisdictions now, and that's a great idea. Uh, but the social distancing is something I think we're getting a little lax in, and that may be in part uh, uh, the reason for the number of increases that you've seen over the last couple of days. That's where we're getting a history of people gathered in a thing and 40, 50 people in the backyard and everybody just back to what they used to do before COVID. And they thought, well, we just didn't think it was a big deal. And even young people saying it doesn't seem to be that big an issue. But now we're getting some other jurisdictions where they're going into might be their second wave. More young people are getting hospitalized. So it's not totally a benign thing. And none of them are having chronic conditions relating to it. So, uh, you can't take that sense that you're invincible. It's not going to happen. You have to be careful and cautious for your sake, but more importantly for the vulnerable ones in your circle of your family and that because you've carried a trust that you would maintain that to protect yourself, but more importantly to protect them also.
Doctor, I've been impressed uh, in talking to a number of experts uh, uh, that are on your team and, of course, around the province and, and the country uh, that are actively uh, studying COVID. I mean, and it's going on so many different paths right now, so many laneways. Uh, obviously, in public health, your job is our our welfare and our concern uh, to make sure that, that, that we're going to be safe. But at the same time, there's a great deal of work going on on uh, well, with the vaccine, which I'll get to in a second, but just as importantly, uh, about learning more about COVID every day. Uh, and I know that you've talked about this in some of your, uh, your daily updates. Uh, we know a lot more about COVID than we certainly did in March, probably know more about it than we did even last week. Uh, and this is a, this, for those of you who are listeners who do think, well, it's not a big deal really because the death rate's not as high as it is in some other, this is a, a deadly virus that can have some long-term effects that we're starting to learn about. Well, that's correct. And we're, um, I mean, that you've nailed it exactly. We have piles of different tables and experts, and that's one of the value, especially I have here in Ontario, is that I have so many different resources and experts and schools of public health and others giving advice and direction. We have our science tables. We have also our federal provincial territorial tables, and they have theirs, and they link into international tables. So globally, there's an all-court press to understand more and more of this new one, because we only came into contact with it really with much understanding in January of this year. Uh, and that's an immense amount of learned already, but there's much more to understand how it impacts so many different populations globally. And you're <coughs> seeing already some countries going back up to big numbers again and with a different demographic uh, picture to that. So it, there is some shifting a little bit and uh, these viruses can move and shift and we want to keep ourselves really tuned in to that and therefore we're very thankful for all our scientists not only with the vaccine you're probably going to get to in a moment but looking at all the other aspects of the epidemiology the data the analytics as this live time um, aspect is carrying on globally which we've never seen before I, I know that you received some pushback from uh, some citizens as you were th- moving through this process with the premier saying come on can we just move this on come on come on come on uh, we want to hurry up and get over this so I, I, that's human nature i suppose but i think we got a stark reminder about having to follow process with the news this morning that uh, the work on the vaccine uh, the, the, a number of canadian officials are working on has also been hit on pause uh, because they found during phase three of, of the testing of course for the potential vaccine uh, somebody had a very adverse reaction we're being told we don't know exactly what it is but i think dr that scores what you've been saying all along is you can't skip steps in this process you've got to make sure that everything is okay before you make that that, that, that next move and whether it's vaccine or, or the protocol precisely and and while there's an impatience we want it over with and i know people are in a bit of a COVID fatigue um compared to other big global issues in the past and we've been a generation that's not had to have these big things too long and so that state to itness is going to be something we're going to have to really work at hard um, in that. And uh, we have to uh, get self-disciplined and stay at it. That means follow all the due processes. If you skip them and you go ahead and do something and say they didn't follow that process and then vaccinated a large part of the population and had a large number of side effects, there'd be questions and reasonably so asked what went wrong. And so we want to make sure that while we want to drive hard towards a solution, we do not want to create problems with that, and it's always first do no harm and make sure that it is, meets all the criteria of a quality, effective, and safe vaccine. Dr. David Williams, doctor, I know your time is precious uh, during these days, and I really appreciate you spending some time with us on the program today. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for your part, too, and keeping the message going out there. It, it's everybody together on this one, and uh, Tara, we've done a great job so far, and I think we have a 
a little bit of a rise now, but I think if we work hard, we can beat this one back down again and uh, move towards a, a safe opening of our schools. But we've got a lot of work to do in that. It's not going to be without its problems. But I know that everyone can uh, do their part, and I'm, I'm confident we'd like to have our schools because the children are really needing it. But we want it safe place for them and safe for the teachers and staff as well. Amen to that. Thanks again, Doctor. Stay well. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you. Will do. Dr. David Williams, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.